Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Is How We Do It, a podcast series where we explore what's working when it comes to gender equity in medicine. I am Rebecca Ortega, the Managing Director of Women is One. And today's guest is Dr. Doreen DeFeria-Yeh, who is a cardiologist at Mass General Hospital in Massachusetts and Director of the Cardiovascular Fellowship Program at MGH, among many other titles. So welcome, Doreen, to the program. Great. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about a few things today, and hopefully it won't be too painful. We know, obviously, that there is just an overall lack of women in cardiology. Something along the lines of 23% of trainees in cardiology are women, but when you look into practice, it's actually quite lower than that. I think something along the lines of 13 or 14% of practicing cardiologists are women. So we've got a real problem here, and as the director of a fellowship program that's dealing with this very issue, I thought thought it would be interesting to talk with you about some of the sort of recent ideas and potential sort of interventions when it comes to this topic. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so we just learned recently that the Brigham, your neighbor, has created a unique position to try to get at this issue, the lack of women in cardiovascular fellowship programs. They have created a specific position, and I actually think there's a director and a co-director working on recruitment of women into cardiology. And I'm wondering if you think this will be an effective intervention, what you feel this might look like. You know, what would something like this entail in your mind, the recruitment of women into cardiology fellowship? Sure. No, this is absolutely. This is a position created at the Beth Israel, actually, in Boston with a role specifically for focused on recruitment of women. I think one thing that is critically important when women are considering a subspecialty or they're considering applying in a, a program is to actually see people who look like them in leadership roles and have an impact in the field. And I think this is an arena where we've really struggled in cardiology, where even, you know, in recent years, as you mentioned, there have been so few practicing women in cardiology and really very few women in senior leadership roles to serve as role models for our new generation and training cardiologists. I think particularly as we think about recruitment, identifying people and identifying women who can help to serve as early mentors for applicants is really critically important. So if there's not a woman within the leadership of a fellowship program, it certainly is critical to have a woman who is appointed as a director in this role or somebody who really will focus specifically on the recruitment of women during our interview season. So I think this is an area where all fellowship programs should think about and kind of examine who are they presenting to their applicants during the interview day, who are the role models, who are the potential mentors for women as we try to build the pipeline in cardiology. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And I apologize because for some reason I get all of the, all of the systems up there in Boston sort of confused in my head for some reason. So no, no it'll be interesting to watch this position sort of unfold and, and to see the results of that effort. And I think even if you don't create a specific position sort of targeting this topic area, I mean, to your point, you can be more deliberate in, in how you recruit and interview women for, for your fellowship program. Yeah. So and certainly having you as a woman in charge of things would be helpful, no doubt. 
Oh, well, I also think it's an area that really merits discussion during an interview day. We've had, for the past few years, we've had women in cardiology sort of breakout sessions at the end of our interview day to bring together people who want to talk a little bit about sort of what it means to be a woman in cardiology, what training can be like, and some of the unique considerations. The sessions open both to men and women is certainly not one that's exclusive to our female applicants, but that type of focused discussion and ensuring that the applicants feel comfortable talking about what really is on their mind and that they have a forum that, you know, they don't need to feel sort of nervous about asking certain questions is really critically important. Yeah, definitely. And I want to shift to a piece of this, which is the evaluation of those applicants. And you recently tweeted or retweeted an article that came out in JAMA a few weeks ago, you know, taking a look at sort of the biases that are built into the evaluation of internal medicine residents in particular, and sort of looking at the ACGME core competencies as the framework for how we evaluate those residents. And the results of that article were pretty striking. They showed that, you know, women in particular peaked in year two of their residency as far as their evaluations went and really plateaued in year three, and that you saw an increase or an improvement in the assessment of men in that same time frame, so from year two to year three, which really, at least in my mind, sort of positions men to be looked at potentially more favorably when they're going into these interviews. What did you take away from that article? What were your thoughts on this as you kind of think about your own sort of process for evaluating residents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I will say it's so important that we continue to demonstrate that these disparities occur. I will say, though, that this is a concept that we've known about for a lot of years, and there have been several studies that have demonstrated that even in letters of evaluation and how we evaluate applicants, medical students, residents for the next step of their training, there's differences in how we use words in letters of recommendation. You tend to see words that are come with power, like, you know, resident is brilliant or strong or has tremendous potential or those types of words in male evaluations, whereas you tend to see words like lovely or hardworking or earnest in evaluation for women. And although all very well-meaning, certainly can impact how people evaluate applicants coming through. So although this was a terrific, concrete example of how it is still a current, very relevant problem that we have in medicine and evaluating trainees, it really is a recapitulation of something that we've been seeing for decades. And, you know, it it really is time we do something about it. There are mechanisms to train interviewers and evaluators to be sensitive and just become aware that these differences exist so that as they review and interpret applications, they keep that bias in mind and they don't sort of underappreciate an applicant because they've been described as being lovely or hardworking in evaluation. And I think to the point of this most recent paper and sort of what is the ceiling in recognizing a trainee's growth. It certainly seems like we continue to recognize growth and potential for men in a different way than we recognize that in women. And that's something we need to be aware of and we need to actively mitigate when we think about, you know, how we evaluate people in the future, how we interpret those evaluations. I would absolutely agree. And we're, we're sort of in parallel to the discussion around fellowship and and trainee evaluations are having a similar discussion at Women as One about the evaluation of faculty for the sort of hierarchy of rank. So how do you evaluate an associate professor when they're applying to become full professor? It's a similar process. You've got up to 10, 12 sometimes letters of recommendation coming in using 
you know, that language potentially that you were just describing and impacting the reviewers potentially looking at these applicants. So you've got a really big problem, I think, here when it comes to the evaluation of women, and not just by men, but by women as well. And how we address this is now the question, because you're you're right, it's high time, well beyond time that we did something about this. And, you know, I think raising awareness is one way of tackling it and having, you know, bias training tends to come up frequently as you know, the solution, but you know, we've not seen a lot of evidence that bias training is effective. So how do we tackle it <laughs> otherwise is, you know, kind of the, the billion dollar question, if you will. And one solution that came up in that article, and I read it actually right before this interview, was sort of reevaluating the framework and the process by which you are evaluating these residents. So are letters of recommendation the right way to go? Is the ACGME competency framework, is it the right way to go. I don't have the answer to that question, but it's it's one potential sort of avenue, I think, beyond just raising awareness of these issues that could be effective. Absolutely. And I think you're hitting on a really key piece, which this is, this really is a very systemic issue and not one where sort of one single intervention, you know, may change things completely, but really is an understanding that systemically gender bias is something that is carried by all of us, by by everyone we work with, including, you know, physicians, co-residents and trainees, nursing staff and so forth. And this really is something that we need to tackle in a very different way that will have systemic impact. Yeah. And I guess I would ask, you know, you potentially, and maybe just sort of the graduate medical education community have been aware of some of these problems for a long time. But do you think that's universal? Do you think if you reached out to your colleagues, you know, at MGH and said, you know, this is a big problem, do you think that would surprise them? Or do you think there is a universal awareness that, you know, bias is such a big problem? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think we are only at the beginning of, of our ability, you know, beginning to educate one another about our own biases. And I think it has been a very slow process of kind of trickling this education to really to everyone so that it truly is a, a systemic, as I mentioned, sort of a very widespread understanding that, that bias exists in a very powerful way. It strongly influences our decision making, whether we like it or not. And there are concrete ways to sort of mitigate some of these common themes. But no, we have a tremendous way to go in terms of educating ourselves. We sort of recently started initiating some conversations with the leadership of our subspecialty fellowship program directors. And really, uh, you know, it was interesting for me to see how heterogeneous the process is of interviewing applicants, even within our division here at Mass General. But we have so many separate sections and separate subdivisions where they they're each have their own culture and, and mechanism of sort of interviewing and evaluating applicants and sort of identifying what is a desired quality about an applicant, you know, we can certainly make some important interventions to try to disseminate implicit bias training in a more uniform way, such that anyone who is evaluating, interviewing an applicant really must go through this type of training and think critically about mechanisms to mitigate. So to get to your point, we have a lot to do in terms of education. And the further we sort of move into even subspecialty fields within cardiology, the farther away I think we are from really reaching an ideal sort of place from an educational perspective on implicit bias. And then sort of the next important steps, which is the active concrete things we can do to mitigate it. Yeah, no, I would agree. And it brings up a good sort of segue here into our our next topic, which is uh, parental leave. And we 
recently sort of started building a program where we are going to try at least to educate cardiovascular program directors, fellowship program directors, but also interventional cardiovascular program directors and EP program directors. So uh, this brings up a similar issue that we've seen in interventional cardiology and EP fellowship programs where we've really just found that there's a general lack of awareness across the board of what the standards are for leave, not only how many weeks they're allowed to give, but how to structure their programs to sort of smoothly allow for that process to take place. So it's a general lack of awareness, I think, overall. And because of that, you've got a lot of inconsistencies and you've got a culture where men perhaps are disincentivized to take time off if they don't have to. And women perhaps feel guilty for taking time off because there is really not a sense of what's normal, if you will. Do you feel that the ABMS, that their new policy of of a minimum of six weeks is going to help in this regard? Do you think that programs will adopt this with open arms or do you think we'll still run into some problems? That's a great question. So just to review the ABMS or American Board of Medical Subspecialties, just in July of 20 of this month for next year, for next July announced that there will be a minimum duration allowed for a parental believe during training uh, of six weeks. And this is in training programs that are a minimum of two years long. So it does not apply to one-year fellowships, like one-year subspecialty fellowships. But any training program that's two years or greater, there should be a minimum of six weeks allowed for parental leave without exhausting other time for vacation or sick leave or so forth. This truly will require a really important culture shift. I think, for example, here at, through the Mass General Brigham uh, Graduate Medical education office within the past year or two, there was a revamping of the parental leave policy so that it included a minimum of eight weeks of leave for all trainees, moms or dads, and up to 12 weeks pending the program and the sort of local governance of the program. Interestingly, it's been fascinating to me how highly variable that has been adopted or implemented. And there are many factors that really can make it challenging for trainees to feel comfortable leaving, you know, work here in the hospital to to be at home for the important work that needs to be done there. And I I found that in some procedural subspecialties that male trainees, despite knowing that that is the policy, they have opted to take less time, maybe for fear that they won't have enough procedures under their belt to be competent at the end of the training, or maybe because it just has not been the culture of a procedural lab for men to be out for an extended period of time for personal or family reasons. So there are many things that impact the comfort at which trainee feels to sort of accept the amount of recommended time off for parental leave. The ABMS announcement really sets a minimum amount of time. So rather than suggesting a maximum amount of time, it really suggests a minimum amount of time so that it really is universal and should be implemented across the board. Having that said, culture is a critically important component to ensuring that trainees feel comfortable taking leave. And that's something that we need to as faculty members and as senior leaders of of training programs and and leaders within cardiology, we have to ensure that that should be the expectation, that should be the norm, that that is welcome, that is really critically important for 
for their family <laughs> development over time. And so this is going to really take some strong advocacy by people who are in leadership roles to ensure that there are cultures within all of our fields within cardiology, whether they're procedural or not, that there's an understanding that this leave is just as important as, you know, the number of procedures that fellows log. And I think to the point about procedural subspecialties, of course, you know, it is important that we're graduating fellows who have competencies in these procedures. And the more procedures they do, certainly that adds. But if trainees do need to take leave, how can we be a bit flexible to carefully evaluate their capabilities in their training to maybe provide some flexibility around their early faculty transition to ensure there's enough supervision and they feel comfortable so that really people feel comfortable taking um, parental leave without worrying that they're going to sacrifice their procedural competencies. So it's a complicated discussion, but I think we are moving in the right direction. And I think the next important steps are that leaders within cardiology need to ensure that they think about what is the culture within my training program or section or whatever that will ensure that people feel comfortable taking leave. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think anecdotally, it's a nice example to point to that, you know, your husband happens to be an interventional cardiologist. And I know sort of based on our prior conversations that, you know, the two of you have talked about this and that you've encouraged him to have more open dialogue among, you know, his fellows and and trainees about these topics, because just as it's important to have women modeling certain behaviors that attract other women to the field of cardiology, it's just as important, if not more important, I think in some regards to have men modeling behaviors for other men to follow so that we really do achieve sort of that open dialogue and that equal playing field. Couldn't agree more. It's so important. This is not a woman's issue. This is everybody's. This is important for everybody. And our, you know, men in our division are our colleagues and hopefully will be supporters, you know, of sharing this, I think, collective wisdom we're all coming to. So could not agree more. Well, thank you so much, Doreen. I really appreciate your time today. And we will uh, hopefully have you back uh, maybe a year from now or something like that. And we'll see sort of where we've been able to move the needle along the way. So thank you for the time and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. 